Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Bill Shireman, president and founder of Future 500. Future 500 is a nonprofit consulting firm that brings together different groups to solve common challenges. Bill has been doing this for the past 25 years. Today, we are going to hear what it takes to solve these societal scale problems and how this may or may not have changed during this recent past. Bill, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Future 500. Sure. Well, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I, I am, you know, personally a, a bit of a, of a contradiction, I guess. I'm a, a lifelong environmentalist from very young age. I am a lifelong Republican from the age that I could register to vote. I have formed a series of uh, mostly nonprofit and a few for-profit enterprises over time that are all aimed at bringing together people who love to hate each other in politics and in uh, and in the environmental movement and social justice movement and so on. Future 500 is the longest standing of these organizations. Uh, we are a nonprofit consultancy that works between big global companies often and uh, and outraged uh, stakeholder groups. A typical example would be ExxonMobil and Greenpeace or uh, Sierra Club and uh, General Motors. Uh, these are companies that are often demonized uh, for environmental or social uh, on so social issues. And we bring them together with their critics and uh, and establish a human relationship where we can actually work on solutions together. Thank you for your introduction and your introduction to Future 500. Now, if I understand it, the basic idea, if I bring this into analogy, is trying to bring together oil and water to solve a problem. To some degree, that's right. It's, <laughs> uh, it's folks who just don't get along, and often it's because they actually are complementary opposites. They think that it's oil and water that they just can't mix, but the reality is that they need each other to accomplish one another's goals. The, the activist community needs the power that corporations bring to change markets and make markets, and the companies need the environmentalists to keep them, keep them serving the public, not just serving their shareholders, because they won't last long if those are the only folks they're serving. 
that's a really interesting idea that you bring up there. The fact that these these different groups are complementary opposites where they need each other in order to survive. Mm-hmm. I and it, it it sounds great conceptually and it makes so much sense that it really is this symbiotic relationship that that they I mean you said it best they need each other. Can we walk through some examples of what this actually means though? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know uh, when I was a when I was a kid, I was faced with a world where, first and foremost, I was growing up in Silicon Valley. There was entrepreneurial activity all around, and I and I got caught by that entrepreneurial bug. And I started a couple of little little tiny companies when I was uh, you know seven and ten and twelve. So I, I had that in my blood early. But I also was growing up in the '60s and the '70s and seeing societal tumult all around me. And these two worlds were really seemingly in contradiction. I, you know, as an environmentalist, I was taught that I should distrust and hate big corporations. And as an entrepreneur, I was taught that that doing business is a way to create solutions for people. And so I carried that forward. Now, over time, I was involved, you know, very early in protests against the big oil companies. When I was about gosh, 12, 12, 14 years old, I guess, I was, I was, you know, protesting the big oil companies. We had the oil crisis at the time, and my colleagues in organizations, the Sierra Club was around back then, and local organizations were all in this battle. But I couldn't help but realize that inside these companies that we had demonized, there were good people trying to make changes. And as I met people with those companies, I became more and more aware that they're in a process of change too, and that we have to work together. But we were all trapped in a media environment at the time that said, well, we're more interested in covering you if you guys are at war with one another, because then we can cover a battle and that will attract people. And so that per, per, you know, perpetuated this, this battle when, in fact, these groups could often, when they met each other, when they got to know each other, they could begin to play uh, the process with both carrots and sticks. And when a stick was necessary to wake somebody up, they used a stick. But when carrots were more useful to actually lead toward a problem, we used carrots. I love the the carrots and the sticks, and oftentimes you only look at the carrot dangling in front of somebody, but never taking that stick and utilizing it the way that you would a a racehorse. So, <laughs> from the from the past twenty five years, bringing groups together, let's talk about a a specific example or two where you brought some some people together to solve one of these kind of major challenges. Mm-hmm. Do you have, do you have any of those shining star moments from future 500 history that they come to mind when I say that? Well, I'd say we have three, let's say three shining stars or two shining stars and one that one that's a little dull, but we hope to shine it up, shine it up soon. So, you know, the founding, the founding uh, uh, campaign for Future 500 that brought us into existence was a, a, 
global battle between the Mitsubishi companies on one hand and groups like Rainforest Action Network and Greenpeace on the other. Now, the activist groups had targeted the Mitsubishi companies because they were involved in timber harvesting, or so they thought. But it was really the a particular one of 40-some different Mitsubishi companies that was engaged in timber harvesting. And the companies that they were targeting were the auto company and the electronics company. Now, they are related to one another. They've got some crossover board members and so on, but they weren't really the same company. But it worked for the activist groups because this was a brand name and Mitsubishi you know, was a globally known brand name. And so it was an appropriate target for them because one of the companies was indeed involved in timber harvesting and the other companies were vulnerable to a public hit. So they attacked the companies uh, as the world's largest you know, destroyers of rainforests. And they were, you know, they were in there with like 2% of the market or something. So they weren't really the largest, but they, they were fairly substantial. And we entered into the situation and realized after talking to both sides that, look, these guys are in battle because on the one hand, the environmentalists want to save the rainforest. And this is how they get publicity. And this is how they generate enthusiasm and bring in volunteers and bring in money. This is how they do their job. But... The demands they've made of this of these companies, Mitsubishi Motors, Mitsubishi Electronics, they can't really do much about it. Now, those two companies then, and we helped them to engage with the third company, the Mitsubishi you know, uh, Forestry Company, and indeed the forestry company with some pressure from both the environmentalists and, the, and their colleagues in the industry did make changes to their forestry practices. But we realized pretty early on that even though we were successful, as a group in making changes that the companies, Mitsubishi Motors and Mitsubishi Electric could actually do much, much more to save rainforests if they used their power as brands. So we worked with the companies to use their brand power to motivate their supply chain, all the companies in their supply chain to begin to use sustainably harvested timber. Now at this time, there was nothing on the marketplace that was called sustainably harvested timber. Now there's plenty of things, but this was the first time that companies began to ask their supply chain to provide sustainably harvested timber. And it led 400 other companies to make the same request. And so the some result of our joining these groups together outside of a war, but inside of a collaborative enterprise, was that we began the market for sustainably harvested timber. And that led to certification standards. And now we have dozens of these certification processes on, uh, for forestry. And it brought that whole network into existence. So that's, that was the, the defining event that brought Future 500 into being. Now we've had some others and some of them have worked extremely well and some of them uh, haven't gone where we want them to uh, quite yet. And I'd be happy to talk about those as well. One question on this Mitsubishi example. This sounds like it was clearly bringing, bringing together these two groups to find common ground and solve this essentially bad PR stunt that was occurring that was trying to change one company's 
image and one company's timber harvesting practices Mm -hmm. from from that angle i could see as you point out there there can be a little bit of ground gained in any one specific Mm -hmm. environmental issue or one specific social issue but through this process you ultimately changed the trajectory and the practices of 500 other companies you pointed out mm-hmm. this sounds like a reactive solution that had significant dividends on the backside mm-hmm. is there ever a time or are there specific projects you see where you are being proactive seeing the problem and now trying to bring the groups together to solve that problem sure absolutely you know and we think there there are several problems on the table right now that we are actively reaching out uh, and uh, getting in between the adversaries on each side to uh, with a vision of creating global solutions one of these is plastics plastic proliferation the uh, the uh, the vast waste of uh, really billions of tons of plastic that end up in a natural environment. And then, of course, familiar to all of us is climate change itself and the emission of carbons into the atmosphere. These are both issues that could be readily solved if we if people were simply getting together rationally and mapping out how to solve the problems to the benefit of virtually all the players. Unfortunately, Politics is not a rational, active environment, except for the the political industry itself, which profits a great deal from the continuing warfare between big oil companies and big environmental groups. And frankly, the war uh, to protect uh, uh, climate and the war to fight plastic is more profitable for the media and the political industry than is the resolution of the problem. And that's the primary barrier that we're facing right now. So that sounds like a significant issue in itself. And it sounds like a, almost as as we're talking, it sounds like a fundamental shift in, in what I've experienced. And I've been alive just a little bit longer than you've been doing this. So I am definitely the greenhorn here. But is I guess is that fair to say that it it almost is previously you were able to be reactive at these situations, whereas today it is almost like there there are these large situations that instead of trying to solve it, it almost sounds like what you're saying is the situation has become the money maker. Very much so. It's the the war is so profitable to a very few interests in the middle uh, that we simply dive deeper into the war. Let me give you an example. So, uh, twelve years ago, we were working uh, between Greenpeace and Exxon Mobil, and we were working with their attorneys, their policy policy folks. And we worked with each of these groups separately to develop what would be a federal carbon tax, a 90% revenue neutral uh, tax on carbon that would cut payroll taxes and replace them with uh, a fee on carbon. 
we developed uh, through them. Now, they wouldn't sit down together in the same room, but they would engage separately. And we engaged with them and came forward with exactly the same federal policy. Both sides could endorse and support the very same federal carbon tax. That was 12 years ago. So now that, according to traditional politics, that should mean that hey, we've got a solution here. And they should be able to take that to Congress and Congress should be able to say, look, we've got both sides. They're together on this. Let's pass this into law. Well, we didn't do that. Why didn't we do that? Because the idea of ExxonMobil and Greenpeace actually working together and supporting the same policy was simply not newsworthy and was not credible based on the narrative that dominated the media. The media narrative that generates story after story and profit after profit and really sells advertising is that you've got the big evil oil companies over here and you've got the virtuous environmentalists over here and they are at war with one another. And there's no way that the companies will ever agree to what the environmentalists are demanding. The reality was both sides knew what needed to be done. Both sides uh, laid it out and they could agree to that. But frankly, the environmental uh, allies uh, of the organization were incredulous that that could happen. They couldn't believe they wouldn't didn't take ExxonMobil seriously and ExxonMobil as well. And the companies, the other companies in, in the field, probably closer to it, but still a lot of distrust. And more than anything else, it was the fact that you couldn't generate any resonance in the political community for this solution, because it was just so much more powerful to make the same case that had been made since the, the uh, uh, Valdez incident first put Exxon into that position and perpetuate the war. So we couldn't solve the problem. Now, this problem of cross demonization is worse than ever. And it's harder and harder for any groups that have been demonized on one side to find resolution with the other side. And so we've, we've found that in order to solve the climate crisis, in order to solve the plastics problem, in order to really bring solutions in any number of issues together in the American democracy, we've got to deal with the, the, the elephant in the room, which in this case is the media and political industry that profits by keeping us at war. That it, I almost don't have words because it it is amazing to sit here and think as as you're talking. Most of what I watch on TV sounds like a lot of doom and gloom. Everything about it is is this is this is the end of this. This is the end of that. Those people over there are causing the end of the world and it feels like that's all that's ever on TV but it it is hard to think that both a large company like ExxonMobil and a and a large environmental organization like Greenpeace could actually come to an agreement in a way that that would not only what it sounded like was potentially increased taxes for for certain groups or certain companies, but then also also be something that is 
clearly a, a large societal societal benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in this case, it was an extremely low cost model because all you're really doing with pricing carbon, and this is why it makes so much logical sense and helps to drive an orderly transition to a low carbon, net zero carbon economy, all you're doing is ceasing the destructive practice of taxing things we like. You stop taxing income or you stop taxing you know, savings, you stop taxing uh, uh, goods, and instead you tax uh, pollution in any form. Now you can do this with carbon, you can do it with nitrous oxides or sulfur dioxides, or you can, you know, you can, you can uh, charge a fee for plastic uh, waste and so on. There's lots of ways to do this, but it's a logical low cost way. And you simply balance that out with by reducing other taxes. So it would be good for every American worker to have their pay increased by uh, eliminating the uh, uh, employee paid uh, uh, payroll tax. It gives everybody in the country a raise. Now they have to pay a little bit more for their gasoline, but they can make the choice then about how much oil to use. And that's the magic of these of these solutions. But they don't work in the political marketplace for two reasons. First of all, there is no media support for something that brings together the left, the uh, the environmental community, and the big oil companies, it's simply not a story that fits either into the left narrative or the right narrative. And more than that, there's no money for the political industry in a solution that doesn't cost very much. A revenue-neutral carbon tax doesn't leave a lot of money to uh, to pay the um, the <laughs> I guess the uh, the toll gates throughout the political process to get legislation through. And so invariably we see that these low cost solutions are not considered in our democracy because they just don't cost enough. And that's uh, that's what has caused this continuing problem with climate. Now there is a solution and that's bringing together the middle 70% of the public that actually wants problems solved and wants to do that pragmatically. And they will be happy to solve a problem without undermining uh, uh, millions of jobs and creating dislocations and discomfort that's necessary because they don't have animosity toward one side or the other. They just want to solve the problem. But the middle 70% of us don't get very much airtime in the media. People who get airtime in the media are the extremists at one end or the other who are absolutely convinced that each other are the enemies. And so we're playing this odd game where we're just watching the far right battle the far left. And if we're inside the left, the only thing we ever hear about the right are the very craziest folks. And if we're inside the right, the only thing we hear from the left are the wildest ideas from the left. And we think those people are to blame for everything. And we're driving it ourselves in this uh, click uh, click heavy uh, digital economy. Hmm. There's a lot of thoughts here that I want to discuss and, and these rabbit holes that I want to go down. But I, I think there's one overarching idea we've been talking about, and that is media and money. I want to touch on the money part because 
you keep saying this is a low cost solution and and talking about how this is going to benefit everybody and and the idea here is this this way to i guess the the whole idea is how do we transform to a low carbon society and what i'm wondering because something i see a lot again on social media but what i see a lot is that switching to a low carbon business model or a low carbon society is ultimately not profitable and it's ultimately going to make life worse and to me what you're saying is that that is that is one of those social media maybe misinformation campaigns mm-hmm. of course it depends on how you do it you know you you can force a transition to low carbon by slowing down the economy and by putting companies out of business and by you know causing uh, havoc or you can transition to a low carbon economy by uh, using new and emerging technologies by shifting to low carbon fuels by expanding uh, solar and wind power by uh, pricing pollution so that we gradually reduce it it depends on how you do it and unfortunately the political process tends to put some of the worst ideas right on the table because they sell to both extremes they they provoke if you put the green new deal for example which is a you know it, it's a wish list for the uh, hard progressive left uh, it sounds appealing on the left because it's a it's a handful of promises of what government can deliver uh, uh, but to the right, it sounds like socialism. It sounds like authoritarianism. It sounds like a government takeover. And we all know how badly government can spend money. So you get bad ideas like that. And then you get another set of bad ideas from the right saying, well, climate change isn't real. Uh, or if it is, we'd rather have our freedom and our prosperity than, uh, you know, than uh, 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 keep the environment healthy, which is absurd as well. 70% of folks in the middle can say, look, we would like to have a transition to a low carbon economy, and we're willing to make the changes as long as the changes actually deliver the solutions that we're looking for, which is a healthy planet. And those solutions are available, but uh, the political process uh, doesn't feature them because it's simply more profitable to continue the war. Okay. With with that idea, I just have one tangential question. If there's a 70% majority in the middle that that is kind of hovering in the middle who can agree on these ideas, why don't we have a a three-party system in politics with somebody in the middle who is pushing these ideas and and getting getting new innovation pushed through the government mm-hmm. it's there are lots of reasons for that one set of reasons is that the one industry that really has not been disrupted since close to the founding of the of the country is the two-party political system now it's not the two parties themselves as institutions so much it is as it is the power brokers that have formed themselves in and around the two parties. 
And when I say this, I don't want to demonize those power brokers either, because literally these days there are something on the order of three or 4,000 political power brokers who uh, divide themselves half into the Republican community and half into the Democratic community, and they just follow what's good for their interests. They've created a political system where uh, 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 district boundaries are defined mostly through gerrymandering to the advantage of whatever political party is in power at the 10-year uh, uh, mark. And they have established closed primaries where only their own party's voters can decide who is nominated. Now, both the Republican and Democratic parties themselves have shrunk in past generations so that you know, the Republican party is maybe 25% of the population and the Democratic party is maybe 35% of the population. And that means that inside the Republican party, the, the most radical 15% of voters actually control the outcomes of those primaries. And in the Democratic party, the most radical 20% or so control the outcome. And so those of us who are voters in the middle are constantly confused. How did we end up with such bad choices for our candidates from both our parties? Like, are these the best people we could find out of 360 million Americans? Well, I guess they are. And they were forced to choose between inadequate choices because the political parties uh, uh, have, have created a situation where we don't really have a free and open democracy to choose what the candidates that the majority would like. Now that's very profitable to political power brokers because by keeping the left and the right separated into now separate media chambers where we don't even hear the news from the perspective of the other side and separate political environments where it's our extremists that have the dominant voice, we're now uh, in a situation where we where the middle majority cannot rule. And that means that the power brokers can essentially auction off the $4.5 trillion that Congress spends every year providing us with, uh, with uh, <laughs> the, the services that we get. Uh, that is healthy for the political industry, but it's not healthy for the people. And it's not something that's orchestrated just by the left against the right or just by the right against the left. The battles that we have right now, you know, between the, uh, the, the forces of the right, and the forces of the left are largely choreographed battles that don't even talk about the real issues that challenge democracy. They just talk about what is going to uh, uh, trigger uh, uh, extremists on both sides. It's fascinating. I, d I don't talk about politics much and I think pretty much never on the podcast. So I'm I'm just sitting here soaking in all of this information and just aghast at, at what you're telling me. But I think, as I said earlier, one of the main themes here is money and money as this incentive to not only keep the current systems, whether they are good or bad or broken or needed repair, the money is what drives them. And I think that money is going to continue to drive many of these systems, whether it's the political engine, whether it is private industry, whether it is societal change. 
So this has me wondering how can how can we incentivize a low carbon future? How can we incentivize us as a society, as business, and potentially even the political engine? How can we incentivize that to move towards mm -hmm. low carbon solutions as opposed to continuing this ongoing battle? Well, really, it's a simple process, and that is that the 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 energy companies and the environmentalists need to work together. The the reasonable folks on the left and the right need to work together. And in fact, we do need to create not a third party because the system is really designed to <laughs> to to not work with a third party. Uh, we have the spoiler effect here, where whatever third party is established takes votes away from the party that is closest to it and ends up electing the candidates, uh, the more extreme candidates of the party that's further from it. So that's not effective, but a third political force that brings that, that brings a few of us together, as few as 5% of us together across the middle 70%, that is what can shift the, the, the profit incentive, if you will, in both the media and politics, away from the extremes and toward the center. So we need oil and gas companies, we need environmentalists, we need progressives, we need conservatives, people who have been taught to hate each other and distrust each other. We need a few of us to step into the center together and work out our issues and put real solutions on the table. That 5% has the power to change the outcome in any election in any competitive district or primary across the country. So that's what we need to do. And it's gonna take an investment of trust by folks in, in, in all of those communities who pragmatically want to solve problems. The solutions to climate, uh, climate change are not as far off as we've been taught to believe. By offering people a wide variety of clean energy choices from solar and wind to low carbon oil and gas to, you know, with carbon sequestration, uh, carbon capture, with hydrogen and nuclear and other options available, and with the uh, with a price on carbon, so that people can make rational choices, and those external externalities are internalized. We've got solid solutions that will drive carbon down year after year and reach the levels that the scientists tell us. In addition to that, we've got innovations in store in the digital economy that can far outstrip any of the innovations that we're pursuing now. Imagine what the capacity would be if we were to take the full potential of digital knowledge, digital technology, to radically reduce the amount of energy that we need across the economy uh, uh, to, uh, to allow people to live the lives they choose. I was in Mongolia a couple of years ago with my family. We were living in yurts for a few weeks. It was, it was just a, uh, you know, a, a, Westerners, a Westerners exploration of, of different ways to live. And in these yurts, in these communities far away from the cities, and local, local residents who were living the way their ancestors had 10,000 years before, but the difference was they also had solar power and they had cell towers and they had full communication with the rest of the world. Imagine that. 
Imagine how much freedom we could have on a fraction of the resources that we use today if we give full power to the digital technologies that allow us to live so much better with so much less. Now, that's a multi-generation transition, but it will happen if we, if we can restore our authentic democracy and allow people to make the pragmatic choices that will gradually wind down our dependence on high carbon fuels and wind up our capacity to live low carbon lives that are highly prosperous and that uh, connect us better to each other. I really like that example from Mongolia, having the, the education, the information, the knowledge of the world mm -hmm. in the palm of your hand that, that we all have with our cell phones and with an internet connection. So we literally are in contact with everybody. And then also living a very simplistic life without, without a lot of the the externalities and materials that we have today in in Western culture, which are are very nice. They're very comfortable. But if I'm honest, I so I record from my closet and I probably have over a hundred dress shirts of which I wear maybe 15. And and that's excessive. But every time I go through it, I'm like, you know what? This one I'm going to wear this week. I'm positive. I really like this shirt. I can't get rid of it. But <laughs> yeah. when was the last time? So we're all trapped. We're trapped in that. And I think you know, a lot of our sense of uh, disquiet uh, and frankly, the desire to consume so much is because we're just not satisfied that we have a place on the planet that is ours. We don't feel like we're connected to the environment, to our families, to our neighbors, to our community, to our nation, and and that causes some disquiet, and it's uh, and it's causing you know some pain across our uh, culture and our economy, and I think a big part of it is we're not allowing ourselves to make the simple transition beyond this incredible industrial economy that has made it possible for almost everyone to be materially prosperous. We haven't made we haven't taken the advantage of that, which is to also live lives that are highly connected, that are connected to us in deeper ways and and begin to uh, to expand our horizons. So we've got a lot of good ahead of us if we can get past this and resolving climate in a way that is bipartisan and that brings the enemies together is is one powerful step that we can take toward a future that's better for nearly all of us. Hmm. Yep. I like that. So what do you envision a low carbon future to look like? What What is that low carbon future that allows everyone to thrive as, as we do today in this wonderful industrial world that we live in, but then also has that added bonus of, of being a low footprint and low carbon intensity? Well, you know, I, I, there's, it's, it's tempting to want to say, well, everybody should live like this. Here's how we should all live. The liberating thing about a digitally centered uh, economy that makes much more uh, uh, thrifty use of the, uh, of the Earth's precious resources is that we can live 
a lot of different ways. We can live the ways that we choose. Not everybody wants to live in Mongolia and, you know, in yurts and, uh, you know, and have access to the world's knowledge. Some people want to be doctors in the city. Some people want to be, you know, want to live lifestyles that are that are very close to the to the earth. And some people, you know, like very different lifestyles. So we can live how we choose. Now, I like to look at nature as an example of how to live in a sustainable way. And what we see in nature's living systems, let's say the rainforest, the rainforest is the is, is a place that is constantly short of energy. Sunlight is is closed off by the uh, by you know at the tops of trees. Not much reaches the ground. Water often passes quickly through the soil uh, and leaches it of its of its nutrients. The rainforest is in a constant state of energy and resource crisis, and yet it has become the most diverse uh, uh, ecosystem on the planet where all advanced life, including our own, originated. So we're living in a world right now that's very much like the early stages of a rainforest, where a single species is battling, it's, is battling for space, and that those species gradually evolve into new and diverse uh, organisms that fill niches. And as they do that, new qualities, new properties emerge, and the rainforest becomes more and more diverse. In our own economy, in our globalized industrial economy, we have artificially frozen ourselves in this early state of uh, mass industrial production. And we have, you know, we, we, expand the money supply to continue to to drive overconsumption. As we let our economy and our culture evolve from this highly consumptive model to a highly creative model, we'll find that people can be more diverse. We can be ourselves. Some of us can be producers. Some of us can be creators. Some of us can be engineers and artists and, and so on. And we'll have the ability to define our own lives. And that's so that's what I see for a future that uh, that makes good use of all of the technologies that we've developed. It doesn't leave anything behind. We're still out there hunting. We're still out there gathering. We're still out there farming and ranching. We're still out there manufacturing. We're still out there uh, learning and developing and connecting with each other. It just raises the level of choices that we have and allows us to be more fully ourselves and express what this amazing species of human beings uh, has uh, within us. So that's what I look at. I look for nature as my, as my guide, and, and that's where I think we, we can be. Mm. Okay. I like that analogy of looking to nature because long before we started to industrialize, nature kind of figured it out and more or less found a symbiotic relationship. And that's where the ideas of symbiotic relationships come from. Mm -hmm. With that, I want to transfer into some final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one being, what's a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh my, well, 
let's see for this for this time you know a classic that i uh, that i have always recommended is alexis de tocqueville's democracy in america and i think now is a moment to revisit that because alexis de tocqueville a frenchman who in the 1830s visited america with his uh, with his uh, uh, colleague uh, Beaumont, and produced an amazingly uh, uh, insightful portrait of what made America work. The qualities that he identified are capacity to form voluntary associations with one another and to work together at the local level to solve the problems that we faced. These are qualities that we still have. And when we bring folks together at the local level, uh, a lot of our partners have found that those qualities are still there. We can still solve our own problems. But we've begun to be convinced that we can't do that anymore, that we have to depend on a big, distant, central government that will make the decisions for us, tell us how to live, uh, and uh, and provide what we need. Uh, 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 read Alexis de Tocqueville and Democracy in America, and it's an empowering exercise in rediscovering what it means to to be an American in a uh, democratic republic. Yes, I will have to add that one to the list. I think you're the first to recommend it, and it does sound fascinating. And especially now, as we look at the current state of affairs, looking back at at kind of early stage what democracy in America was sounds not only inspiring, but also very informative. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Uh, you know, I think we will be net zero around, around 2040, 2050. I think that uh, uh, we can't map out accurately how to get there from here, and this is one of the things that has made it difficult for uh, energy companies to commit to uh, uh, reaching, let's say, you know, net zero by 2050 or net zero by 2040. But I am confident that with the tools that we have from the digital economy, which have enabled us already to achieve radical resource uh, savings, that as we begin to optimize those and shift from a an economy that is fundamentally based on the extraction of resources to an economy that is fundamentally about the multiplication of knowledge and uh, and um, uh, uh, connection, that we'll find ways to live that are much more resource efficient, and that we can make the transition. So I think I think we'll be there by the middle middle of the century. That's a it's a common answer giving around 2050. I find it interesting that you are optimistic or or maybe that is realistic while also very cognizant that it is very difficult to see the pathway. And I think it's interesting from the regard that it oftentimes when you are developing a business model or a plan, you have your Gantt chart and you map out the entire project and the entire business model. Whereas here, as you point out, it is very difficult to do that, to really understand how we can go from where we are today mm-hmm. to a net zero society, just because it is such a large task. But I think it 
I, I said it was optimistic because you you know it's possible mm-hmm. and the excitement and the momentum and all of the technology improvements that we're having make it that even if we can't see the path, we almost intrinsically know that we can get there. And it's mm-hmm. almost the human ingenuity will get us there, even if we don't see how to do it yet. Right. That's the whole, the whole you know, the, the, the confounding thing about innovation is that it's, it's so innovative. <laughs> you don't, you don't really know what's going to, what's going to work, but you can predict it. And we know that by ensuring that we actually have an incentive to drive down our carbon emissions uh, with a price on carbon, that's the most effective way to ensure that we keep coming up with new ideas and that we drive that carbon footprint down uh, over time. And we do it in a way that's good and healthy for business so that we're not harming people. When government tries to choose, you know, or when engineers try to sit down and say, okay, what do we have to do uh, to make a transition? We, we invariably make mistakes. We invariably uh, demand uh, uh, demand changes that turn out to be counterproductive that we just couldn't uh, couldn't predict. We choose the wrong technologies. We choose the wrong application of those technologies. The this authoritarian temptation that we constantly face to define our future and have experts impose it on us. Uh, it's just a fiction, and I think it comes from industrial thinking where you really can plan a factory or a city, uh, you know, in that way. But we're moving into a much faster, more adaptive, more living economy now. And we need to look to nature for our examples. Nature uses feedback and adaptation uh, to move generally toward higher and higher levels of being. That's what we can begin to do as a human culture as well. Mm. So now the last question, you actually get to ask me a question. (laughs) Well, my question to you would be, how do oil and gas executives in your experience uh, 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 see the challenge that we face? Do they, uh, are they uh, uh, feeling that they are, uh, they've been uh, demonized and that they can't poke their heads out and actually propose real solutions? Or do they feel like, hey, we're, we're in this and we're willing to work across the aisle to make solutions happen? That is a interesting question and especially, especially relevant to our conversation here today, because I think a lot of the points that you've been hitting are very similar to what I would say with my answer. A lot of the, a lot of what you see being discussed right now are, are initiatives or, or movement or investment into low carbon energy and the transition of these larger companies going from the I guess the oil and gas traditional business model into an integrated full energy technology company. Mm-hmm. And one aspect of that, that, that we don't talk about is the fact that a lot of the investment there 
is coming from oil and gas profits. Mm -hmm. They need those profits in order to invest in the research and development Mm -hmm. to find profitable business in the low carbon space. Yeah. And that is, that's getting demonized for one. People are saying, oh, look at, they're spending all of their profits or the only reason renewables are being built up is because of dirty oil money. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect is that the, the right now, from my perspective, and really from, from working in the geothermal industry, the payback periods, the business model, the internal return on investment, all of the financial metrics are in general a different business model and often a less profitable business model Mm -hmm. given the current structure of society. And I think that that is one scary to executives. They see this and they say, okay, we can be profitable, but it's not as much profit. Mm -hmm. And when you are beholden to shareholders, those shareholders will then also say, that's not the kind of profit we want. Right. And I think so, as as you're pointing out, this needs to be a solution that the shareholders agree on, the CEO see as a sustainable business model, mm-hmm. and ultimately everybody is willing to, I guess the easiest way to put it is that everybody's willing to make a little bit of a sacrifice, whether it's in their dividend or whether it's in growth trajectory or whether it's in paying more at the pump to get low carbon gasoline. I think everybody needs to make that full societal acceptance mm-hmm. because a a low carbon society, as far as I can tell, and if we want to live in a low carbon society that looks very similar to today, mm-hmm. is ultimately going to have higher priced energy. And that's that's my perspective. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I also think that that is there's at least going to be a little bit of a sticker shock up front that that I think we're all fighting against right now. Yeah, and, and you know, I actually have a different different opinion from that. I do think that energy prices will continue to go up, and then they'll go down, and and you know, be somewhat be somewhat uh, unstable because we're not uh, yet dealing in a rational way with our uh, with our carbon emissions, but. Uh, you know, there was a there was a time when salt was a rare commodity under extreme demand, and prices were high. And people people were using it at that time before there were refrigerators. They needed to preserve foods, and that was how they did it. Now, refrigerators came along and essentially just knocked the bottom off of the out of the demand and price for salt. And now it's a it's a low cost you know commodity, and there's plenty of it around. I think the same can happen with uh, uh, fuel-based energy over time, that with the power that digital technologies have to radically improve the amount of value we derive from every unit of fuel that we use, I actually think that there will come a time when energy prices are low, but consumption is also much lower than it is today, simply because we don't need that much. Now, we're going to have to adjust our systems of taxing and certainly our systems of uh, rewarding because we don't need an economy that rewards 
uh, shareholders for doing things that are destructive to uh, the planet or to people. You know, th that, uh, uh, you know, those uh, uh, misfunctions of the economy uh, do need to be dealt with. But as we deal with them, we're going to find that there's more prosperity out there available for more people and a much greater diversity of lifestyles that we can live simply because our diversity is good and it's something that we're going to have the ability to express. So the transition may be challenging, but not nearly as challenging as if we fail to make the transition. Yes, I agree with that. And, and I like your take on it that really it's going to be the transition may be a little bumpy, but ultimately we should be able to find a, a smooth road ahead. And I agree with that. I think it, it depends on, on how quickly we can all come together and make these agreements and ultimately drive that innovation because there are, there are plenty of technologies and plenty of ways to get a consistent, relatively cheap electricity out there. And it's a matter of making that upfront investment and then optimizing and incentivizing low use. Yep. Well, Bill, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, I would say if, for those who are interested in, in getting involved in our initiatives, future500.org and in this together, america.org, in this together, america.org are our uh, initiatives to bring folks together to find solutions. And uh, Trammell Crow and I, my uh, uh, partner in this uh, endeavor, uh, have a new book out called In This Together. Look it up on Amazon and, uh, and uh, take a read. And if you like what we're talking about, get involved. Well, Bill, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Doing these simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. If I'm ever in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. Finally, if you have a, any questions, comments, corrections, or you have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.